Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. I remember some years ago when the uh, Hartford Oilers, is that right? National hockey team in Hartford, Connecticut, moved to North Carolina, to Raleigh. Became the Carolina Hurricanes. And I said, what a crazy name is that, the Hurricanes? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's pretty apt for North Carolina. Uh, we have hurricanes. I guess us in Florida have the Hurricanes regularly. Look on a map, North Carolina sticks out. You can't help but to catch something coming up the coast. And we've been, I think, probably everybody here have been through hurricanes one time or another. One came through Kinston a few years ago. I forgot what that was. Was that Irene? I forgot what it was. But we were living in Newport at one time, uh, Karen and uh, myself and our, our two kids. And I forgot what hurricane it was, but it blew all night. The electricity was down. Of course, you're dark in your bedroom, and it's blowing like crazy. And I'm hearing stuff outside. I said, oh, my gosh. I know all the vinyl siding off our house is off. I just know it. I can hear it. I can hear it. I can hear it. Oh, this is terrible. And that's probably the most frightened I think we've been through hurricanes. And we've been through a number of them. Got up the next morning, went outside. Thank goodness, it was just a bush scraping against the house all night long. So I had nothing, maybe a little blown off. It wasn't much. It wasn't near as bad as I thought it was. But all of you can have your hurricane stories you can tell too. And sometimes they do scare us. But what happens when a storm overwhelms you? Now I'm talking about a physical storm there with a hurricane. And maybe a literal storm like a hurricane, but maybe more like an emotional or spiritual storm in your life. A crisis in your life. A metaphorical storm in your life. Now our text today is a famous Bible story. You're all familiar with this story. It may be more likely the Matthew account. We'll look at the Matthew account a little bit later of this, the parallel account, the one in John. And it's about a literal storm disciples were in. They were in a boat. I want to look at this storm and make some applications from their experience to our experience today. So let's look at, it, look at the, the Bible here at our text and kind of uh, retell it. Uh, again, I started in verse 15. Uh, let's look at verse 14 from last week. After Jesus had, had fed the 5,000 men, 15 or 20,000 people, I don't know. It says, verse 14, when the people saw the sign, that's John's word for miracle that he had done, they realized this was a miracle. I think I said last week when Jesus changed the water into wine, nobody really knew about it except the disciples and the servants. Here, these thousands knew a miracle had taken place. They saw the sign. In fact, I think it says in the text last week they came looking for a sign. And they said, this is indeed the prophet, and my translation is a capital P, meaning the prophet Moses talked about, a prophet's coming after me, the Messiah, who is to come into the world. So they were getting excited about this, and they wanted to make him king. Verse 15, perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew against the mountain by himself. So not just a person to feed them. They didn't say, we want you to be our leader and feed us and feed us, but be our king 
implication there, get rid of Caesar. Get rid of Herod. We want you to be our king, our Messiah. Kings, what do Messiah kings do? They defeat the enemy, the foreign powers. They cleanse or rebuild the temple. Be our King David for our generation. Be the prophet. Be the King David. Be the Messiah. This is what kings do. We want you to lead a rebellion against Rome and Herod and perhaps even against the temple leaders because we know the temple's corrupt. Be our Moses. Feed us. Lead us to the promised land. This is what they're thinking. That was last week's sermon. Well, as we come to to verse 16 here, um, Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Disciples will see in in just, well, let's go ahead and turn to to Matthew, to Matthew 14. Let's look at the parallel passage, things Matthew says that John doesn't say. It's the same events. They tell it a little differently. But Matthew 14, verse 22. Now, verse 13 is the feeding of the 5,000. So apparently the feeding of 5,000 happened, and then this walking water was the exact next thing. Matthew 14, let's look at verse 22. It's after they fed the 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, John says Capernaum, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart as I, do not be afraid. Let me just continue for context. I'm not going to talk about this. this, Well, I won't read it. This is a situation where Peter says, If it's you, Lord, command me to come out. And Peter walks in the water to Jesus and starts drowning. That's what this next paragraph is. So all this is happening. John doesn't record that. But Matthew does. So this is what's happening here. I want you to to understand. So after Jesus has dismissed the crowd, he sends disciples, Matthew says, into the boat, go to their side, and John says, go to Capernaum. And Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Now, we see in verse 18 back in John John 6 that uh, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. This was no small squall that was happening. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills, especially on the north and down the east side, with mountains behind them. And there's deep rifts cut through the uh, hills, which the winds may naturally flow. As the air over the water is heated and rises up, and cool air comes down the mountain and flows, it can become a real thing. Now, these 12 disciples, at least four of those, were fishermen. I'm not sure if there are more than that. And they understood storms, been in storms, survived storms. And it says here, they were frightened. Here the professional fishermen were scared out of their wits. So it's a, it was a bad, bad storm. And they've been rowing. As I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the Sea of Galilee from north to south is about 11 miles, and the widest point is about 8 miles across. And the text says they're about 3 or 4 miles into the sea, from one side to the other. So about halfway through the, into the sea, or it's a large lake is, is what it is, it's when they're, they're stuck. They're struggling on the lake. They're trying to row and row and row and row, not getting anywhere because of the storm. But about really in the middle of the lake, really about, about four miles in and got four miles to go. They were frightened. 
while sport fishing off a Florida beach, a tourist capsized his boat. He could swim, but his fear of, of course, Florida alligators kept him clinging to his overturned craft. And he spotted an old beachcomber on the beach, and the tourist shouted, are there any gators around here? Nah, the man told about, they ain't been around here for years. Feeling safe, the tourist started swimming, left his boat, started swimming leisurely toward the shore. And feeling safe, he, he kind of yelled back to the guy and said, how'd you get rid of the gators? We didn't do nothing, the beach bum said. The sharks got them. Okay, you can imagine how this fisherman, sports fisherman, felt. He was frightened. Well, verse 19 says that they were frightened. Again, these professional fishermen were frightened. And he comes walking on the water and reassures them. Next thing you know, according to John, bam, they're on land. Red old night went three miles. He's got on the boat, bam, three miles, four miles, they're on the coast. They're at Capernaum. What a great story. This is looking at, at Matthew's account and John's account and put it together. It's, it's a tremendous story. And there's lots of truths here, lots of truths here uh, about the faith, about Jesus. And I want to uh, talk about you know, Jesus in the midst of our storm. So I want to suggest four lessons for us today, some applications for us today out of our, of our text. It's a fact, number one, you will experience storms in your life. That's kind of like a duh. Thank you for saying that's right or amen. But it's really duh. It's really the response. What we all have experienced it. Uh, that's what life is all about. Um, most of our lives contain at least one storm that threatens our entire state of well-being. Now, the storms in our life may come in different forms and affect us differently in different ways. But all storms contain some common elements. Usually they come kind of all of a sudden. Not always, but usually they come by surprise, and they tend to fill our hearts with fear. These storms test our faith. And it's to be hope that will cause us a crowd to our Lord and Savior for help. And so the storms of life become a building blocks of faith which actually equip us for the bigger storms to come later in life. That's kind of a real synopsis there. So think of the, the storms in which, you, which have invaded your life or the life of someone you know, someone you love. Think of those storms. And it could be the storm of illness which may come on suddenly or may come on gradually or may be prolonged. The storm of death, the death of a loved one, of a child, a, a partner, especially one that was unexpected to die. What a storm that is. The storm of rejection, maybe through divorce or separation or abandonment of some sort. That's a, a terrible storm of rejection. The storm of unjust criticism. I mean, even if, I don't like just criticism, <laughs> but unjust criticism, sometimes they come our way, and that's a, that's a bad storm for us. The storm of emotional trauma. Uh, we may have hatred or anger or resentment or bitterness towards someone or someone toward us, that, that kind of storm in our relationships of emotional trauma. It could be the storm of physical loss like a hurricane, to lose your home, perhaps, or through a flood, or a loss of a job, or a loss of money, or a loss of security of some sort. These are terrible storms. The storm of accident, or in some event which may change the course of our lives in an instant of time. We're not expecting it, and sometimes it just changes us. 
I'll tell you, friends, one thing I've discovered uh, as a Christian, and you perhaps have too, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ does not exempt us from the trials of life. Amen. Is that right? You guys have been there. So never, ever tell a person who wants to become a Christian, become a Christian, everything will be okay. In some ways it will be, but in some ways it's going to be even rougher, right? Have you experienced some storm in your life? Is there a storm right now threatening you in your life? If there is, take heart. Disciples of Jesus Christ were not exempt either. Here are the closest ones to Jesus, and they're in a big storm. Now, this may be hard for us to understand, but isn't Jesus the one who's supposed to protect us from the storms of life? Amen. Okay. You're saying good. I'm going to say amen. Okay. Uh, yes, but why would Jesus send them out into a storm? That's what Matthew says. John doesn't quite say that. Matthew says he sent them into Go in the boat and start rowing, and a storm's coming. That's interesting, isn't it? But if you check the context of these verses, it's not the promise of freedom from trial. It was given to comfort the disciples as he warned them of the cost of being his followers. He said in an earlier place, men will deliver you up to councils, brother will deliver you up brother to death. You'll be hated by all men for my sake. But remember, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Far from really reassuring the disciples of an exemption from trials, he's saying he was comforting them that trials would not overcome them. That's a big difference. So why would Jesus send them out to the storm? Jesus sent them in the storm to protect them from temptation. Hang with me for a second. Look at verse 15 again. Perceiving that they, the crowd, were about to make, come and make him forced, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, the desire of the crowd to make him king of Israel was not a temptation of Jesus. That was he understood his timing. He understood, yes, I'm your king, but not like you think. Jesus had that under control. He had no problem. That was not a temptation for him. For Jesus knew what they did not yet understand. He knew he was the Messiah, the king, but he knew this kingdom was not that which they were looking for. A different kind of kingdom. And this is not the right time either, Jesus is saying. See, they were seeking a political leader of pomp and power to lead them against Rome, and he knew that they were far more concerned about the tyranny of Rome than the tyranny of sin. And Jesus would have to deal with the tyranny of sin on the cross. But he knew that this desire of the crowds could be a huge temptation to the disciples. Remember later when John and James come to Jesus? Master, we want to ask you a favor. Sure, what is it, guys? We want one of us to be on the right hand, one on the left hand, and come into your kingdom. I won't be the vice president. I won't be the secretary of state. And Jesus says, oh, guys, you don't understand. And uh, So that was the temptation. Let's let Jesus be king, and we'll be the, the 12 on the council. We'll be there. This is a temptation. It could be a temptation. It would have been a temptation for me. Here was a height of success. We want you to be king. 
They saw the huge crowds following the master. They, they saw his miracles of healing and multiplying the food. And now the people want to crown their master as the king. You see, they're not quite mature enough to distinguish popularity from success. And so Jesus sent them away into the boat while he dispersed the crowds and went up the mountain to pray. You, you get in the context here? He may have sent them into the storm to teach them more about trusting him. This is not the first storm they've been in. Just a few months earlier, they've been on the lake with Jesus asleep in the boat. Remember that story? This was some months earlier. When the storm was so bad, they thought they were going to drown. And when they woke him up, he stilled the storm immediately. And they asked him, who is this guy? So they had some experience with this power over the waves. Here's an opportunity for them to trust him. So what about you? Has God sometimes allowed you to undergo trials in your life to protect you from some other temptation? Has he allowed you to experience storms in the past in order to strengthen your faith? I'll say for Fred, for my life, amen. Trials are not fun to go through, but at the other end, you're stronger for it, and you're mature. If we had the rest of the afternoon, we could take turns sharing testimonies, couldn't we? That's right. Second, Jesus, though unseen, is with you in your storm. You're getting there, Fred. Thank you. You see, the disciples' trials were known to Jesus on the mountains. They're in the middle of the lake, struggling, bad storm. Jesus in the mountain, and he knows what's going on. He's praying. Jesus is praying on the mountain. And that while his prayer may have been chiefly concerning the future event of the cross or what it means to be Messiah, I don't know what he's praying, but I'm sure that he also prayed for the disciples who were in the boat. Nothing could happen to them unless he allowed it. The disciples thought, you know, you especially see this in Matthew, but also here in John, says they were frightened, but in Matthew it says, it's a ghost. It's a water demon. It's, it's you know how, if you are a fisherman, I don't mean to insult you, but you know how fishermen tails get bigger and bigger and bigger? I don't mean the size of the fish, but the size of anything. So, so they see this appearance of whatever it is, Jesus walking on the water, coming to them, they think it's a, a water demon. They think it's a monster. They think it's a demon. They think it's a ghost. Matthew says, it's a ghost. They're scared out of their wits. Whatever it was, it was scaring the living daylights out of them. Even at least the four professional fishermen. Now, I think this experience should tell us something about the trials we experience. Trials, while not enjoyed, seems to serve a worthwhile purpose in our lives. Not all our testings are of earth-shattering, life-changing proportions. Most of our difficulties are relatively small, yet annoying. But we can learn to trust Jesus in these distractions to strengthen our faith in daily living. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, we glory in tribulations. Because tribulations or troubles produce perseverance. That perseverance produces and draws out character. That character contributes to a new sense of hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. First Peter 
writes, Peter writes in 1 Peter, tells us that we to have been, we may have been for a little while grieved by our trials, or that the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, may shine forth to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, you may not like trials, and who does? But you need to be tried. Trial casts you upon Christ in humble dependence, especially when you cannot really help yourself. Man, if you learn that lesson, you're down the road. Trials will not only demonstrate to others that you're a person of faith. Trials demonstrate to yourself that you have faith even more than you realized. I'm reminded of of Genesis 22 when God called Abraham to, to take his son Isaac to the mountaintop, Mount Moriah, and sacrifice him. Now, God knew what was in Abraham's heart. He did. But I don't know if Abraham knew it or not. By going through that trial of sacrificing his son, I think it showed Abraham what Abraham's heart was like. Does that make sense? So sometimes trials are good for us to realize we have more faith than we thought we had. The Christian life has passed from one to another, from life to life, as others see you an example of steadfastness and trust that they desire for themselves. As people watch you go through trials, they may say, I want that too. Not the trial, but what the strength you have. It's important to remember that even though Jesus appears to be absent in this trial, they're on the water, he's well aware of what you are experiencing and nothing happened to you without his permissive will. So the disciples are on the water, they're having a trial, but Jesus is praying, he knows what's going on. He comes to them and they see him and they're scared. That leads us to the third point. Jesus will come to you in the midst of your storm. So while they're struggling, rowing, 12 strong adult men, Jesus came to them on the water. And they still haven't quite grasped the the power of Jesus and thought there was a ghost or something, and they were frightened. And to reassure them, Jesus identified himself, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, they know his voice. In a book, John Stevenson writes that when he was about 12 years old, he had a paper route and took him along some of the back canals of South Miami. And one rainy day, he spotted a little baby duckling walking around that's being stalked by an old big tomcat. But he chased the tomcat away and didn't go very far, figuring as soon as he went away, the tomcat come back and have duckling stew for supper. He decided he would take the little duck home with him for his own safety, of course. However, as John says, he writes, he approached the little duck, he scuffled across the way and tried to hide him some bushes. And he says he wanted to tell him, little duckling, I'm not the problem, I'm the solution. Right? Don't we do the same thing? Like the little duck? When he gets in a situation which we're not familiar, don't we often forget that Jesus is with us and he's a solution to the problem? He's not the problem. We sometimes think he's a problem. God doesn't love me. God's mad at me. Blah, 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 blah. He's the problem. No, he's a solution. We cry out to him and we regain our trust that he's with us. It calms our fears, allows us to approach our situation, new confidence and peace. But Jesus will come to you in the midst of your storm. And lastly, Jesus will get you safely through 
the storm. The last sentence of the story is interesting. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Matthew says, as I read a moment ago, when he got in the boat, the wind ceased. The disciples worshipped Jesus and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Before I conclude, I want to make another comment about Jesus here. A couple things. In verse 20, he says, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I, that's kind of an echo of what God said to Moses, the burning bush. When the bush was there and Moses was experiencing God, and, and he said, what's your name? And God says, I am. Kind of echoes that. I am. It is I. In fact, it, it is in Greek, literally, I am. Ego I me. Do they think that? I don't know, but at least it echoes that. And I think maybe the disciples, these good Jewish boys, men, as they were maybe reflecting upon this, John for sure some years later writing this, there is a place in the Old Testament that talks about God walking on the water. In Job 9, chapter 8, let me see what Job says. Job's an interesting book, as you all know. Job is talking here. He's talking about God. In chapter 9, verse 8, says, Who, meaning God, alone stretched the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. I think any Jewish person, especially these men here, would know their Old Testament, we call the Old Testament Jewish Bible. But who walks on the water? Who tramples the waves? It's Yahweh. It's God. I think John, not directly, I think John is kind of saying here about the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is walking the water. Jesus saying, it is I. There's some reflections there who Jesus is. John's trying to show us here, I think, in a, in a kind of a, a side manner. So what can we learn from this miracle? Well, these four things here. You will experience storms in your life. Jesus, although he's not seen, is with you in the storm. He'll come to you in the midst of the storm, and he'll get you safely through the storm. Not just a hurricane, but any kind of storm that we face, have faced, or will face in our lives. That such storms usually come suddenly, often unexpectedly, and frequently without preparation. Such storms usually trigger fear in our hearts. I know it does me. And they usually emphasize our complete helplessness and leave us with nowhere to turn unless we're walking in complete dependence upon Jesus. An old hymn asks the question, will your anchor hold the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? You see, friends, the trials of life that we are going through or will go through need not to overwhelm us. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then you have a wonderful promise in the Word of God in, in Romans 8.28. You guys all know this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. 
even trials God can use in your life. And the next verse tells us that he is seeking to conform us, the image of his son in, in Romans, and then asks us a question we must never forget, no matter what storms of life we may encounter. Paul continues, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord, what a, a great story that we all know of you walking the water, and even with Matthew, Peter coming out in the water, and the storms of life, and it really shows in, in Matthew how you sent them out into the storm. Father, thank you for the storms of my life. I, I didn't enjoy going through them, but looking back, I see how you orchestrated it and how you were there with me and how I got to the other side because of you, and how I'm a stronger Christian because of those trials. Father, I pray for these listening to my voice even now that perhaps they're going through a, a tremendous storm right now. May they experience your presence. May they experience who you are and what you're about in their lives, how you want to use this trial, this storm, to strengthen us for a number of reasons. Help us to trust you in the little things and in the big things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.